Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Oop, there we are. Good morning. We'll try that again. Two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Good morning to you. My name is Bron Burton. This is Radio Marinara, I should say that first. We're the program about all things wet and salty. And uh, joining me on the magic of the uh, the power of Zoom is... It's Farm. Hi, everybody. Hey, Farm. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Very good. Looking forward to the show today. Excellent. Yes. Missing your physical presence here, but uh, but glad to have you uh, with us via other means. Hey, thank you very much, Tim Thorpe, for a wonderful three hours of vinyl bits, six hours this weekend. Thank you, Andrew, very much for soulful bits. Uh, and as always, a bit of blues this morning, which was really great to listen to as I was driving in. If you missed it, it was the son of Muddy Waters and I didn't catch his name because I was driving and um, wasn't able to uh, to write it down. But the best bit is, actually Tim might bring it in or let me know. But um, yes, the best bit is that you can uh, you can go back and listen via radio on demand and uh, catch it for yourself. So thank you, Tim, very much. And Andrew, you can catch Tim next weekend, of course, as always. Um, big show uh, coming up shortly. We're going to be joined by Rex Hunter, who is our maritime heritage guru. He's going to be taking a look at defence installations in Hobson's Bay during the 1850s. That's all I know. <laughs> so we'll find out more from Rex shortly. Um, and uh, then, Fum, you have a very special guest lined up. I do. I have uh, Ricky Hirschberg from uh, Plastic Oceans Australasia on the show today. And uh, Ricky's been with us before. And uh, yeah, she's uh, sharing some exciting news about a campaign they're running regarding plastic-free picnics. So how good is that timing right now? <laughs> Perfect timing. Have you uh, have you got out for a picnic yet, Farm? No, not yet. I'm uh, I'm um, I'm still trying to make some dates with friends. <laughs> I reckon if my but uh, they will definitely be plastic free once I get there. Yeah, excellent. So good campaign, and also I'm really interested in finding out just a little bit more about Plastic Oceans Australasia, and they've got a campaign. Oh, that's, this is the one picnic picnics unwrapped, but um, a doco as well, which I'm keen to talk to Ricky about. Mm. A plastic ocean. Yeah, plastic yeah. oceans. That's right. That's uh, and and I, I believe that that's how the uh, the not for profit actually got into existence because of that documentary. So we'll be uh, chatting with uh, Ricky shortly. And uh, then to close the show, um, very special tribute that we're going to pay to Bob Whiteway OAM, who passed away last week. And if you listen to the program, you you might recall we had uh, somebody call in. Bryce rang in to let us know that Bob had passed away. So uh, sad news. We want to honour Bob and the work that he did and we're going to be speaking with his dear friend, President of Marine Care Ricketts Point and Marine Education, Science and Community, their President Ray Lewis, uh, OAM as well, and Secretary Virginia Mosk and talk to them about Bob and his life and his legacy and also the critical role, I guess this is really a huge part of his legacy, the the critical role that he played in ensuring that Ricketts Point uh, in Beaumaris was protected as a marine sanctuary as part of Victoria's legislated system of marine national parks and sanctuaries. So, yeah, Bob had a really crucial role in uh, in ensuring that that part of our coastline was protected 
uh, for generations to come. So, yep, really looking forward to speaking with both Ray and Virginia about Bob and uh, and paying our tribute to him. And Tim's just dropped in a note. Thanks, Tim. So for Soulful Bits, it was Mud Morganfield, who's uh, Muddy Waters' son. It was really great. Loved it. So, yes, if you missed it, go back and listen via Radio On Demand. All right, let's have a little look at the weather for Melbourne and surrounds today, Farm. Do you have the details there? Absolutely. Here's your weather girl for this morning. Sunday the 26th of September 2021. Melbourne, top of 15 degrees. Um, some patchy morning frog and frost in the other suburbs. Partly cloudy morning and then a, uh, a sunny afternoon. Light winds becoming south to southeasterly, 15 to 20 k's an hour in the morning and then becoming light in the evening. Uh, tomorrow will be a top of 20 and sunny. Uh, Tuesday, a top of 23, so it's getting better. But unfortunately, this is Melbourne fake spring. So every time you think it's going to get better, it's going to rain again. So before the end of the week is over, we will have plenty of rain coming through. Geelong and the surf coast for uh, today is is top of 15, partly cloudy and some light winds becoming east to southeasterly, 15 to 25 k's an hour in the morning, then becoming light in the late evening and very similar for the Mornington Peninsula, which getting a top of 14 degrees today. For the tides, Port Phillip Heads, next low tide is right now, 9.03 a.m. this morning. The next high will be at 3.17 p.m. And if you want to go for a snorkel within your 10K radius up north somewhere, uh, for example, Marine Care, Rickers Point, and uh, their sanctuary over there, well, Morris, next low tide is 12.32 p.m. And the next high will be at 6.08 p.m. today. Yeah, so mid-afternoon for a bit of slack. Well, that's at the heads, but, um, yeah, should be good weather today. Um, mm. Yeah, excellent. And just those two key days during the week, Farm, it was Tuesday, which was going to be that really nice warm day and Wednesday where it's going to rain 20 mils. Is that right? Yes, pretty much. <laughs> so if you want to go and do your picnics, do it quick. Do it on Tuesday. Sneak out for, yeah. a, sneak out for a cheeky picnic during your work day on Tuesday and, um, yeah, then uh, yeah, close, close everything up for Wednesday because it's going to be really wet. Um, hopefully no more earthquakes. Now, um, although I don't know about you, that was probably about the most exciting thing that happened to me all week. Apart from the grand yeah. final yesterday, I'm not a demon supporter, but I wanted to put out a big shout out to all the demon supporter commiserations to, uh, if, you know, if you, if you back the dogs, I have a lot of friends who do, I don't know, I, I would have been happy either way, but um, I'm very glad that the D's got up. It's been a very long time, of course, since they won a grand final and um, special shout out to Shorty. <laughs> I think she was in floods of tears by the end of the game. And to our own Dr. Beach, of course, who's been a lifelong Melbourne supporter. So, yeah, congratulations to to all you good folk. And um, actually, I've neglected um, Cliff's weather report. So Cliff sent us some stunning photos which um, of sunset, sunrise sorry, at 6am. And it wasn't that long ago from where sunrise was at 11am. So it's amazing how quickly turn, things turn around down there. Which isn't any yeah, great it's getting better. Yeah, right. Before we know it, they won't get a wink of sleep because there'll be daylight the whole time through, right? Yeah, I think he'll. Uh, he's. I think the plan is for Cliff to come back um, around at the start of the summer. So I'm hoping we can get him in the studio um, before the end of the year. Um, but the weather forecast down at Casey Station this morning, heading for a, uh, a top of twenty minus twenty five point six, with the wind chill factor that'll take it down to minus thirty eight point nine. So it might be getting lighter, but it's certainly not getting warmer and uh, humidity of 79% uh, with a wind of uh, 14 knots southerlies. That would explain the uh, wind chill factor to minus 38.9 degrees. So there you go. Wow. Do you think uh, Do you think we'll get we'll be able to get Cliff and the crew to sign up for a plastic-free picnic? <laughs> that's, a great, <laughs> that's a great idea. 
What do you reckon, Cliff? <laughs> Looks like it's nice cooler weather. Maybe they could um, duck outside for a plastic-free picnic in minus 30 degrees. <laughs> Let us know, Cliff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, quick news item and then we'll go to a track um, and uh, line up Rex. So this is a nice – thank you, Elizabeth McCarthy, our uh, our talks producer who sent us this one, from the Australian Marine Conservation Society and uh, the uh, – <laughs> Cliff says no. <laughs> that was a quick response from – Cliff says, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, you uh, saw it too. Uh, yeah, he's not, he's not ready. He's not ready for a plastic-free picnic outside at, uh, at the top of minus 25. <laughs> yeah. ah, so <laughs> oh, I can't blame you, Cliff. Um, headline from the AMCS, Marine Conservationists Support Indigenous Rangers on Unique Sawfish Rescue Mission. So I really love this one. The AMCS has begun an exciting new partnership with the Northern Land Council's Malak Malak Rangers and Charles Darwin University to support a long-running and unique program to locate and rescue critically endangered juvenile large-toothed sawfish in the Northern Territory. So uh, the, I think we've covered some work by the Malak Malak Rangers before um, with the patrol work that they do looking for marine um, debris, plastics in particular, but we might, we'll might we come back to this one, undertaking annual patrols of their floodplain country around the Daly River for the last 10 years in the late dry season as floodwaters recede and waterholes dry up. The sawfish they find trapped in the drying billabongs are carefully removed into the main river channel so they don't run out of water and die in the evaporating pools. This vital work has so far seen the Malak Malak Rangers rescue 75 large-toothed sawfish. That's great. What a good number, a significant number for a species assessed as critically endangered in Australia. So excellent work. It's always good to report on a new, good news story farm. Yeah, absolutely. And that is really amazing because, yeah, as, as you said, it's not going very well with sawfish. So, uh, you know, <laughs> any sawfish uh, that we can rescue is is amazing. So great job, everyone. Uh, another quick one and then we'll play track. Um, I, I did want to cover this one that came out. It's um, about a new technique developed by University of New South Wales, Sydney marine biologists looking to efficiently identify which of Australia's soft coral species are most vulnerable to global warming. So this is really critical research being done by the University of New South Wales and really looking at which species are most vulnerable to rising sea temperatures and episodes of coral bleaching. And, and this work's been published in the Frontiers of Marine Science and co-developed by University of New South Wales, PhD student Rosie Steinberg, who I'm wondering might be the daughter of Peter Steinberg, whose work we were actually discussing only a couple of weeks ago uh, in terms of the work that he was doing looking at um, when we we're talking about antifouls. So I'm um, going to look into this one a little bit more. But great description um, of their work. So <laughs> it's described in this press release. The technique's description sounds a bit like a fancy recipe. Researchers collect and puree samples of wet frozen coral and then extract and count the number of algae and other organisms contained within the coral and the results of this process gives them an indicator of coral health and from that they can extrapolate uh, how resistant they might be to changes in their environment. So really great great work and um, we'll follow that up I think and we might try and get Rosie Steinberg on the show in due course. Coming up to 13 minutes past nine, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR and in just a moment we'll be speaking with our maritime heritage guru Rex Hunter about defence installations in Hobson's Bay Without further ado, good morning, Rex Hunter. Uh, morning, Bron. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm glad I'm coming through. I wasn't quite sure. But... Yeah, we usually go to Skype with you. So, um, yes, the whole show's being done via a different medium this week, but it's working. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Farm for setting this all up. 
Hey, nice uh, work. Yeah. So let's go to uh, 1850s in Hobson's Bay. Uh, yeah, Paint well, a picture um, for us. Well, before, um, well, this all centres around the gold rushes of the 1850s. So sort of a gold rush started in Victoria in about 1851, just out of Ballarat, and um, spread spread through uh, you know, the Western District, even up north, up to the Murray and all over Victoria. This brought you know, thousands of uh, people from around the world to, to uh, Melbourne. So previous, previous to that, Melbourne was just basically a gateway to a great pastoral run. There was nothing, you know, get, get the other side of um, Flinders Street and there's virtually nothing. So this was a very, very important event for Victoria. And um, so up until sort of, 1850s export import, you know, a man with probably a few hundred thousand pounds. But by 1853, uh, gold exports alone for Victoria amounted to like nearly eight million pounds worth of gold in value. So, if you can imagine, um, a tradesman would have been earning, be lucky to be earning a pound a day, um, which would equate to, you know, what. $300 a day these days, $400 or whatever. That's an awful lot of money lying around. And by 1860, there was a sort of import-export trades to the value of £26 million. So there was an awful lot of money sitting in Hobson's Bay. And the government of the time, Governor Latrobe, was a bit worried that uh, <laughs> a rogue state in brackets, uh, Russia might come come into uh, Melbourne, you know, uh, attack attack the shipping, take the gold, and head off. When you could imagine that one ship might have, you know, the equivalent of uh, you know hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of gold on board. So that was an awful lot of money. So, so uh, why was government the it... uh, also? Right off to his uh, the secretary of the, the colonies in the UK, asking for a couple of men of war. Um, we managed to get one one small warship, and that came out in about 1853. And then Victoria started investing in its own warships and bought uh, one called the Victoria HMSS Victoria, and that was that carried about seven seven guns or something like that. So, but we still didn't have any really major land defences. Um, so it was that. In 1855, they had there was a it was a royal engineer called Paisley, Captain Paisley, and he he designed a series of defences for Hobson's Bay. So the heads were still open to anything that could come in, but our sort of last last well, first and last line of defence was Hobson's Bay. So on one side you had um, Williamstown, on the other side was uh, sort of Port Melbourne, Sandwich. So they built a it was a fort built at, uh, at Point Jellybrand, which was uh, consisted of bluestone and, and um, rubble, rubble fill, and that took about six guns, something like that. And then on the opposite side, at sort of uh, Port Melbourne, South Melbourne, was a fort with about I think it's three, three or four guns, something like that. But uh, they had a there was a royal commission in 1860, and because um, there was various new letters to the newspaper saying how ridiculously unsafe all this was, and you wouldn't stop, you know, uh, a serious, two serious warships by cleaning up this defence battery, 
least defence batteries, you know, in about five minutes flat. We also had a, a, a block ship in the middle of Hobson's Bay between Williamstown and um, Port Melbourne, and that was a converted... It was a spare light ship, so that was converted. They put a couple of guns on that, and so imagine how safe that would be if some of them started firing. There's, there's no defence... There's no iron work or anything like that. It was just a wooden wooden ship with a couple of, with a gun, a couple of guns sitting in the middle of Hobson's Bay to defend, you know, all of Victoria from the rogue states. Rex, why yeah, were they Rex, sorry, yeah. we just for listeners' benefits, we can't well, I think Farm and Rex can see each other. I can't see either of you, so <laughs> apologies if this is a little clunky. Rex, why were why were there such great concerns about Russia in particular at that time over other <laughs> Other um, potential, you know, invasion well, or, or I think there was sort of stem back to um, you know the UK and uh, Russia, you know, at odds with each other all the time over control of uh, you know the, the seven seas more or less. It's just you know, just egos fighting. You know, nothing changes. It's still happening these days. It's just egos up against each each other. And um, and 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 uh, how much gold was actually being stored in Hobson's Bay? Was it being kept on the water because it was considered to be a safer place for it to be offshore rather than held in in a, a land based facility? Well, it was the mint, the mint in Melbourne, so that that could uh, hold a certain amount of gold. And yeah, the gold was brought down you know, via coach, stagecoach, or whatever, from um, Ballarat and ovens and all over all over Victoria. Stored there and then exported, but it was a huge, you know, huge, huge amount of money. Um, in the and, and Rex, I'm I'm really curious because uh, you know when we're talking about gold and ships and all that sort of thing, I you know I, I watched Pirates of the Caribbean again for the first time <laughs> a long time the other day, so I've got these like images of, of of pirate ships and stuff running through my mind. But when you talk about guns, are, are we talking about what sort of guns are we talking about? Are we talking about like those classic cannons yeah, with yeah, cannonballs? Yeah. Yeah, cannon, cannon style gun. So not just your little um, 303 or 202, you know, proper, you know, uh, take four, you know, four inch, six inch shells firing them. And they could, um, they could fire about three kilometers. Wow. Like and that. did that ever happen? Like, was there ever a cannon fight in the bay like that? Uh, well, the, <laughs> when we eventually got the Cerberus in the, the 1880s, the Cerberus, the Cerberus fired, fired a practice shot at, off, um, off, off uh, St Kilda, ended up going through a shop front, in, in through the front of a shop, out the back door, and then ended up a couple of blocks away. Oh, my God. Was, and after that, they say, no more shooting, please? Or There's there no serious threats, really. And um, oh, there was a couple of times, like, a ship would arrive, Ready, new passengers just came out from the UK, you know, may, may have saved sailed in record time. So, be firing because they carried guns as well, so they'd be firing their shots. The next day in the paper, there'd be some, you know, report about how they thought they were being attacked by, uh, a, you know, a rogue state or something like that. It was just someone celebrating, <laughs> like getting out the party poppers these days, <laughs> right. Um, Rex, in other times when you've been on the program, you've talked about the floating prisons that were located just off Hobson's Bay and in, in within Port Phillip Bay. Were they? Was this all happening at the same time? So you've got these vessels that are containing, you know, millions of pounds worth of gold sitting alongside floating prisons. Is that how things were? Uh, more or less, but the, 
the prisoners actually, um, they were the labor, they provide the labor to actually build the first batteries at uh, Point Jellybrand. So they were incarcerated and trained up as quarrymen and stonemasons. There was a great big industry in just quarrying stone on Point Jellybrand itself and working the stone. Yeah, right. So, and there was actually, there was a famous, there was a famous gold robbery called the Nelson Gold Robbery. And that had, um, there's a ship called the Nelson. It was anchored in Hobson's Bay and just received, a, uh, you know, like thousands of pounds worth of um, gold and specie. And um, unbeknown to them, there was a, a couple of people knew what was going on. And they, at night, uh, under the cover of dark, darkness with uh, muffled oars, according to the reports, they rode over it and stormed the, the Nelson. There was a series of, yeah, pirates, I suppose you want to call them, robber pirates. They got, got the guns, the, the guns that were actually on board this vessel, threw them overside and got away with, you know, thousands of pounds worth of gold and species and, and uh, never, ever caught. No, I don't think there was anybody ever caught. There was rumours that there was a guy at Inverloch and he, um, some German guy, and he, he had buried the, the gold up there. Rick, so, Rick wait, there is buried treasure at Inverloch. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't want to give the game away, but you, know, <laughs> you might find me holidaying there occasionally. I'll be dreaming of pirates for the rest of the week. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it was such a lively place during the 1850s. Could you imagine? You know, it was miners walking down the street burning 10-pound notes to light a cigar and things like that because there was just so much money, so much money being thrown around, so much wasted too as well. <laughs> Oh, how things have changed or not. Okay. Um, hey, Rex, we're pretty much on time. Is there anything else you'd like to say about 1850s and uh, and and defence in Hobson's Bay? And, well, just to tidy it up, um, in the end, they had a, they had a, 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 another royal en engineer called Captain Scratchley, and he, at, at the result of the Royal Commission, he wanted to spend 200 and, to say 210,000 pounds building 11 forts around Port Phillip from Williamstown all the way around up to Point Ormond. So there's going to be Martello Towers in Hobson's Bay and all sorts of, to take 51 guns. In the end, the government thought, oh, well, this is going to be awfully expensive. What can we get for 10,000 pounds? So they end up building the battery, another battery at Williamstown and one over at South Melbourne. And again, they were just you know, more ornamental than uh, effective. And to eventually, they did spend a lot of money and, and fortified Point Jellybrand uh, remnants you can still see today. Amazing stuff. Thanks, Rex. That's been really oh. fascinating. And um, any idea on what you'll uh, let, let us know about next time you're on? Well, uh, again, I, I use the old system. I write a series of topics on a piece, several pieces of paper, throw them up in the air, whichever lands first, <laughs> I, I choose that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we look forward to to hearing what that is um, when we have you back on in, in, in a month or so. Yeah, why, why not? <laughs> it's the old paper grading approach, isn't that what lecturers used to, that's what I heard they used to do, is they'd throw the papers up in, in the stairwell and see where they land and grade that way. Excellent. I don't think that, well, so who, who knows? Time I can yeah, right. All right. Thanks, Rex. We'll catch you soon. Okay, see you guys. See Bye. You. Bye. Thanks. Rex Hunter there, our maritime archaeology in-house expert. Farm, over to you. Ah, we are joined today by Ricky Herzberg, the executive director of 
Plastic Oceans Australasia. And as a short intro, Plastic Oceans Australasia is a not-for-profit organization that's based in Melbourne, but they work throughout Australasia to change the way that we deal with plastic waste by challenging society's perception that this in destructible substance can be treated as disposable. And through education, science and sustainability, they aim to change the behavior and practices towards the use and value of plastics. Um, so yeah, right up my alley. And uh, welcome back to the show, Ricky. Um, it's been a while. Hi, fam. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And uh, I think there's a lot of blurry eyed people out there uh, in Melbourne today, having um, won the AFL. I think everyone's pretty excited about them demons getting through so that was all exciting but yeah it was um last year just as the um COVID the pandemic was starting that you and I actually had a conversation and so much has uh morphed and changed and did we know then what we know now my goodness oh my god I know right yeah so um I invited you on the show to talk about uh, your plastics uh, picnics unwrapped campaign, which could not be more timely. <laughs> now we have just gotten the green light, you know, with some restrictions still, but to uh, to get together again uh, in the nice weather and 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 picnic with uh, with people who are fully vaccinated um, as we are. Um, so can you tell us a little bit? Maybe we should start with a little bit more about Plastic Oceans Australasia because I think Ron, you wanted to know how this was connected with the uh, doc documentary, right? Yeah, we were talking earlier, um, Ricky, about uh, the, this documentary, A Plastic Ocean, and and I'm curious just to know in general about plastics, o Plastic Oceans Australasia. Yeah, no, uh, great, great question. Obviously, um, it, the connection and how we got to picnics from there. Uh, four years ago, Plastic Oceans Australasia uh, launched in Canberra Parliament House, and we are the, we're part of a global alliance with Plastic Oceans UK, which is now um, known as Ocean Generation. And the movie was uh, produced by the founder of Plastic Oceans UK, a lady called Joanne Ruxton. And Joe and I worked together for many years in Hong Kong, um, delivering um, campaigns, Healthy Oceans campaign to schools, to businesses. And we were already working then, way back then, about... Um, the oceans, about waste, about pollution, about plastic. And when she produced the film, uh, they launched it at the very end of 2016. And we were asked to, I was asked to head up Plastic Oceans here in Australia because there wasn't any um, presence in the Southern Hemisphere with the same sort of work. So the movie is still used as a very, very vital, important resource for our education training, both for businesses and for community groups and schools, et cetera. So the, the film, even though some of the facts, uh, some of the actual figures with the amount of waste that's out there are now outdated because unfortunately, uh, plastic waste has just kept on going up and it's rising and it's exponentially increasing. Um, those, those little um, facts on the film are out of date, but the film itself is the first feature length global film that went out um, to really raise awareness in the world about what was happening. And the film is um, supported by Sir David Attenborough, who's also in the film. And uh, he's he and Joe Ruxton have been working together for many years. So it's been really fantastic to have that as a resource. And from that, we've used the, um, the film along with a lot of other curriculum materials and also um, 
uh, behavioural change materials and also a lot of hands-on activities that we use in the schools and workplace uh, to help people change their habits. So everything we do is aimed on actually not just what goes on in your mind, but also what you're doing with your hand, because the two things definitely have a disconnect. So that was how we started. That's The movie was underpinned who we are. But as we've more moved through the next four years, we find that there's so much more that we have to do, um, aka which is why we've actually come to Picnics Unwrapped, which is now a standalone um, campaign that we started unbeknown to us earlier this year. We thought we were out of lockdowns. We had no idea we were going to be locked down six you know, and keep carrying on with lockdowns, but we wanted to do something where we could bring people together, have fun, um, enjoy food, family, friends, which is what everybody likes to do. And that was before, as I said, lockdown six. So that was how we pivoted at using this as our first public campaign, which we've never, ever done before. And we've actually extended it now throughout the spring. So I think hopefully that answers that connection for you, Bron, about how we got to where we are now. Yeah, definitely. I had a quick question, Fami, if that's okay. And um, it was just it was just about how things have changed since the making of a plastic ocean. In obviously the 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 big change has been uh, has COVID that we're in this COVID world and the amount of plastic related PPE that has come around as a result of that. And we've been hearing reports of it ending up, uh, you know, um, in in waterways. And is this something that you're hearing about as well that it's becoming a real problem around the world? Oh, absolutely. Um, Sam and I were talking last year, and I think at the time uh, we were talking about an article that we both had seen where it was talking about nine billion masks, just masks alone. This was in the UK. I can't remember the publication now, but um, I know Sam and I were talking about it. Um, just in per month were, were what they were um, estimating was going to be used thrown away and disposed of with the with the disposable masks and um, recently the figure that I got was 129 billion masks so that's just wow. to give you the comparison of what's going on so our work we've been busier than ever and now more than ever we're trying to really get people to actually pivot over and we know that masks for many of us in Australia are here to stay for a long time so if people could just do the one thing and get a reusable mask and wash their cloth masks, get a couple, get two or three. There's lots of wonderful designs that people are doing. You can make them really trendy and they've been out now for a while. But if we could at least get people to do that, that would be one major, major improvement. And it still seems to be very difficult. We are challenged with the health industry. Of course, they can't do that. But the actual day-to-day -day people out there, as long as they've got the three layers of fabric, they are safe to use those um, cloth masks. Yeah, I'm a pretty average Absolutely. sewer and uh, managed to to work out how to make them. So, um, yep, it's it's uh, look, it's easier said than done, of course. And I have a sewing machine, but um, if you have basic understanding and, and knowledge of how to sew, um, you don't even need a sewing machine. You can use a needle and thread and make them yourself. Sorry, Fum, over to you. Yeah, well, I was going to say that we're really seeing the effects of those disposable masks, right? Because if you go outside for your for your daily exercise allowance now, you, you can find them all over, you know, creeks and hanging in the bushes and things like that. So we really do need to um, take care of that. Um, but let's get over to the Picnics Unwrapped campaign, Ricky. So what are you asking people to do? Because I, I visited the website and we'll, we'll post a link to that on our Facebook page as well so people can find it. Uh, it looks it looks really Quite exciting. So, what are the uh, what are the main uh, focuses of the the picnics unwrapped campaign, and how can people participate? Uh, 
Oh, yeah. So the um, the website is really self-explanatory. We've tried to make it really easy for everybody. Anybody can enter. We wanted to make it, as I said in the beginning, the, the three main reasons why we created the campaign was for people to have fun, get together, stay connected, help with mental health, human health, out there and outdoors. It's really great to be out and about. Um, and people are also doing the camp, um, picnics at, at home online. So if you are in, still in total lockdown, we've actually created it that people can jump on and do it online and you can do it whichever way you want. But ideally, it's great to be outdoors. Um, the second reason for the, for the picnics is obviously to raise awareness about your plastic use and high volume packaging, food packaging and food waste go together. So we wanted to connect the two. So when people are actually having a picnic, they can actually think about what am I doing with the containers of those plastic dips or, the, you know, the plastic cups or all the different things that tend, you know, you go to the supermarket and you grab all these things off the shelf. Every cheese is wrapped in plastic. Like you think about all the things when you go and you grab your, you know, your packet of, um, you know, cars, water crackers, everything's got plastic somewhere in it. So we wanted to get people to actually think about it and try really hard to actually take their food and their packaging and their everything to the park or wherever they're going, even if you're doing it in your house, on the table, on the lounge room floor, wherever you're doing your picnic, to actually really have a go and not using plastic. So we have, um, and then the third reason, most importantly, any funds that we do raise from the campaign are actually going to remote, regional and disadvantaged communities, which can't normally get our resources. So it is, it is actually for a really good cause and it's all going back into our schools program. So we wanted to make it exciting. So we created some uh, little competitions. So we've got three competitions, the best presented picnic, the biggest picnic and the most unique location to have your picnic. And we've got some awesome prizes and we want it to be, and you can enter, take a picture wherever you are. I'm still putting it out there and I'm gonna put it out on the radio to the world. Anybody who has a picnic underwater, maybe wants to feed the fish with whatever they want to feed them and they take a picture underwater, that would be a unique location and really in line with who Plastic Oceans is and what we're doing. So I'm still putting it there out up till the 15th of November. So we the wanted challenge to have, has been issued. <laughs> yeah, the challenge, the challenge to have a unique location. So we thought if we had some great prizes, it would really encourage people, as I said before, you know, entry is free, create a team, get on there. We're doing a lot with the schools. We've got a beautiful schools buddy seat that they can also go on as well. Yeah, fantastic, Ricky. So uh, we will put a link on our Facebook page for people get on board. Uh, and I love this message because, you know, last time we were in a pandemic in, in the in the lockdowns and we were coming up to spring and people were allowed to picnic, we saw the overflowing bins in every park. Um, so it's really time to take responsibility for that and, uh, and yeah, look after our waterways. Ricky, really quickly, before we have to wrap up, um, I know you have a, uh, a film challenge for schools going at the moment. Um, yeah, would you just explain what is what is happening there very fast before we go to our next track yeah absolutely so it's called oceans in motion and it's available for schools uh secondary school students to create a five minute video or less of what they're doing to try and minimize plastic waste at their school and their school community now with the schools that have been in lockdown like particularly on the eastern board um kids are doing things at home they're creating a video of what they're going to do what they'd like to do that anything challenge so even if you're not doing it yet planning what you want to do next year. And that video is submitted to us. The expressions of interest close October 16th, but the actual submissions are not due till November 25th, 
uh, November 26th. So it's all on our website. We'd love it if some stu students wanted to enter. Last year, we had fantastic um, entries again during COVID. Um, we had a school in New Zealand. So it's a, a trans-Tasman competition. So it's open to any, any school in Australia and New Zealand that can join. And again, it's just to get that creativity and get kids thinking about what they can do, even if they haven't done it because of um, challenges they've had with COVID. Wonderful. Well, plenty of stuff to do at uh, Plastic Oceans Australasia. Thank you so much, Ricky, once again for, for being on the show. And yeah, everybody get your uh, picnic stuff ready. Um, you know, it's good and send your back. pictures through. Send those photos through. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if, if anyone posts a photo of an un, of their underwater picnic, please send it through to us and we'll put it on our Facebook page because that is something I'd like to see. Yeah, Thank absolutely, for all the divers out there. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Happy, happy Sunday. That was Ricky Herzberg from uh, Plastic Oceans Australasia. And who doesn't love a good uh, trans-Tasman bit of rivalry there, Fum? Although I'm just going to say up front, you don't want photos <laughs> yeah, of me right. feeding the fish underwater because that just has a whole new meaning. I get very seasick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great idea. Yep. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, to hearing about some of those entries and some of that school's work as well. Triple R is where you are, Radio Marinara is the name of this program. Now, last week on our show, we were very saddened to be informed uh, by Bryce, who called us at the end of the program to let us know about the passing of Bob Whiteway OAM. And Bob was a pioneer of marine conservation and marine education in Victoria. In particular, he spent most of his life advocating for his beloved Ricketts Point by Morris. It was his persistence and dedication, along with Ray Lewis and a team of dedicated people that ultimately triumphed in having Ricketts Point protected in legislation as a marine sanctuary in 2002 as part of Victoria's system of marine national parks and sanctuaries. For the remainder of today's program, we'd like to play tribute to and uh, honour Bob Whiteway and we now welcome his dear friends and fellow marine conservation advocates from Marine Education Science and Community and from Marine Care Ricketts Point, President Ray Lewis. Good morning, Ray. Morning. How are you? Well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, and Secretary Virginia Moss. Good morning. Morning, Bron. How are you? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Great to see you all. And. Uh, Look, thanks so much for joining us today. Look, firstly, our condolences and our deeper sympathies from all of us here at Radio Marinara um, on the loss of your friend, Bob. Um, Ray, you knew Bob for a really long time. I thought I might start by asking you for listeners who haven't come across Bob uh, and uh, and Ricketts Point um, and or Misak, can you tell us a little bit about Bob? Well, I was pretty keen on the marine environment and living a little further south of Bayside and I'd retired, I wanted to get involved. And the only name that ever came up whenever I asked people who knew anything was Bob. And I uh, came up to Ricketts one day and uh, eventually found him near the Beaumaris Lifesaving Club and said, are you Bob and sort of thing. And before long, we were great mates. We've been great mates for 21 years. Uh, it was, he's, he's an exceptionally man of generous spirit. I've never met anyone who is just never cranky always helpful, always aware, and acutely aware on a multifaceted level about the value of the sanctuary and being nice to people and mental health and seaweeds and seagrasses, you name it, Bob knew it. And so I had a very, very fortunate three or four years of tutorage under Bob so that I could go ahead and do many things myself and build on what he'd done. Virginia, and oh, sorry, right. probably the best-known guy in Bayside in 2003 he was named Bayside's Citizen of the Year for much of the work that he'd done with 85,000 people in Bayside. I think that's a really substantial honour. 
Yeah, it's other honours followed later that I'll mention if I get the chance. No, please do. Um, and of course, that two thousand and three year was the year immediately following the declaration of marine national parks and sanctuaries, and and Bob had such a a critical role to play in that, um, which spoke about his role in education as well. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about that. Um, if you could let us let us know about the work that Bob did to take marine education out of the classroom and down to the water, because he started as a gym teacher, didn't he? Yes, he did. He, he came to Bowie High School as a gym teacher. Uh, and he, when he arrived, they didn't have a geography teacher. So I was put on Bob to suddenly switch hats and become a geography teacher. And he took to it with alacrity because people would know as well he's an excellent artist, which he never you know, took very far, but he could draw wonderful things on the blackboard. And he was telling me that he got quite astounded. In those days, teaching was a blackboard chunk of chalk, a teacher, and the kids all sat down. That was it. So if you taught geography or volcanoes or something, you never did any more than get a lecture in a classroom, go home and do your homework. So Bob was affronted and he decided to take uh, much geography out of the classroom. And it was very, very difficult in those days. He did lots of demos, for instance, in one case, he had a rubbish bin and he wanted to show how hot air rises and things happen and cause clouds. So he threw some papers in the rubbish bin, threw a match in after it and stood back but what he didn't check was that the bin was actually lying with a highly flammable material oh. <laughs> and it shot up and got, got so hot it caused a burnt circle on the floor of that classroom, which, is, which was there until they pulled the school down to build a new one. <laughs> one of his many legacies, but definitely not the best one, I'm sure. <laughs> no. No. Also with the marine side, he just wanted them in. So he developed snorkeling classes and took them all down there. So it was a very adventurous and new approach, uh, locally anyway, certainly in the Melbourne metropolitan Bayside area. And he was there for 37 years as a teacher. And, I, and I've got to tell you, any time I've taken a tour on the beach or elsewhere, someone always says, did you know Bob Whiteway? And I stop when I'm in full flight talking about some seaweed or something. And before I can answer, they say, he was my teacher, you know, Yeah. bathed in some reflected glory. There's, so, uh, there's a lovely, um, a lovely. I'm just trying to look in my notes, a lovely tribute by one of his former students, uh, Melissa. Mm. Um, actually, I've got a, a message from one of our, our, our own listeners as well, who I'll, I'll mention this one in a minute. And um, Melissa says, he made us laugh, he made us think, he made us wonder. His passion for education was infectious, both in and out of the classroom. More often than not, the classroom was Ricketts Point. And it's just like you were saying. It's uh, These days we call that place-based. And of course, that's, that's just a term that's being used at the moment. But it was something that he really pioneered a very long time ago uh, and 37 years I guess we I really want to put a call out there uh, just a, a shout out really to anyone from um, Beaumaris Secondary College or Beaumaris High School as it would have been previously known um, because they'll be feeling Bob's passing fairly fairly acutely I would have thought Ray. Hmm. In terms of innovation can you imagine what it's like to be um, aware of the bay and love it you know as I've probably told a few people it's proper name is Nam. 30,000 years it was called Nam, and it's the cleanest body of water in the entire world next to a major city. Mm. And Bob loved every drop of water in it and everything that was in it. But how do you package it to talk to people? How do you package tides and winds and water temperature and seaweeds and crustaceans and intertidal reefs that are splattered with volcanic iron and, and the birds, shorebirds? Getting all that together in a package takes a lot of intellectual strength. That's what Bob managed to do. 
he managed to package all of that stuff together and come up with a coherent way of talking about it that people could actually understand. I mean, I, sorry, you're going to... I was going to say another message from Lizette uh, Ashford, who, who contacted us via our Facebook page, said she was very sad to hear of the passing of the enigmatic Bob Whiteway, is how she describes Bob, and uh, said that he was a very important part of my... Not altogether pleasant high school life. He was a wonderfully odd person, and I'm, and that's meant as a compliment, who nurtured us odd students and made us feel better about not fitting in. He made it something valuable, which really speaks to what you were just saying, Ray, uh, about him really just uh, enjoying everybody and, and, and being, you know, having that real, I guess, drive to to connect with people and and. Uh, and work with them to understand and value the marine environment. Um, Lizette goes on to say, Bob taught me how to snorkel uh, and wrote long, thoughtful, encouraging comments on the back of my geography assignments. He managed to be simultaneously wide-eyed and childlike, yet also endowed with ageless wisdom when he shared with us his wonder of the local marine life. Uh, Vale, Bob, we'll all miss you. I hope the sea urchins and the limpets and the rays at Ricketts Point are holding a wake for you and celebrating the way you tirelessly championed their cause. So lovely tribute there from a former student. Student. Yeah, and, and maybe this is a, a question for, for you as well, Virginia, because, um, you know, I, I never had the pleasure of, of meeting Bob, but we had, a, we had a little chat before the show about, you know, his amazing legacy that he's, le- that he's leaving. And you, you told me all about his amazing efforts in actually getting the marine, marine protected areas on the map. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about um, what happened there? Like what was Bob's involvement in the, uh, in the establishment of marine, uh, of uh, Ricketts Point Marine Care? Thanks, Fum. I think Ray actually has more knowledge about that. He, um, Bob actually had to campaign for 16 years to, to get that established. And um, there, were, there were quite a few battles, weren't they, Ray, with government and with sure council is. and, yeah. Yes, he, he, um, it was a single-handed battle because, I mean, what's the extent of it, how you impact other people, fisheries, fishing people wanted to fish, boating people wanted to boat, people wanted to go through with their outboard motors and things and enjoy it all. So there's a big backlash against him for a long, long time. But he finally got people on side. And, uh, and at the last moment, he got word that the uh, state government was going to not include Ricketts Point, but uh, open... Uh, 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 Point Cook and Williamstown are sanctuaries. And these are the first sanctuaries in the world, by the way. They're things called marine protected areas, which you all know is a generic term. And there's lots of set subsets. One of them was sanctuaries, which then spread around the world because it was a simple no-take zone. But uh, Bob, uh, uh, immediately when he heard that uh, we weren't going to get it after all that terrible long struggle, he uh, wasn't daunted. He launched a campaign immediately through council and others. Within two weeks, the decision was reversed. I remember that That's at the time, brilliant. Ray. It was absolutely yeah. mind-blowing how he managed yeah. to turn that around. And it was right at the 11th hour, which we're actually on now. I've just seen the time. It's 9.59. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to have to wrap up because we've got our next program about to start. But, yeah, it, the work that he did, the legacy uh, that he has left behind, uh, as we said, ha- is going to endure for generations to come. Um, Ray, Virginia, thanks so much for joining us and I'd love to have you back on the program to talk a bit more about Bob but also about Marine Care Ricketts Point and sort of pick up where we're about to leave off and uh, and really kind of have a focus on, on Ricketts Point and, and particularly, you know, in the summer months coming up, the sorts of things that people can go and do and value down there because of the work that, uh, that Bob had did. 
We'd love to do that. Thank you, Bron. Let's do that and then we'll have a bit more time to talk (laughs) a bit more at leisure. It's very much fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ray. Bye, everyone. And that was Ray Lewis and Virginia Mosk. So thank you so much to them. Also to Ricky Hurstberg, to Rex Hunter. Thank you, Farm. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.